Welcome to the Vanguard Bible Church podcast. For more information about Vanguard Bible Church, visit www.vanguardbible.org or come worship with us on Sunday mornings at 9 a.m. at Freedom Middle School in Northwest Bakersfield. We hope you enjoy today's message. For centuries, man has tried to build unsinkable vessels to show his mastery over the seas. One such example, and there are many throughout history, was, uh, came about in the late 1970s. In 1976, Mitsubishi Heavy Industries launched the world's largest self-propelled, semi-submersible offshore drilling platform. The Ocean Ranger, as it was called, was 396 feet long, 262 feet wide, 337 feet high, which is 31 stories, by the way. Its drill could reach depths of 25,000 feet, and it floated on two 400-foot-long pontoons that rested 79 feet below the surface of the water. The Ranger was designed to withstand winds up to 125 miles per hour and waves as tall as 110 feet, causing many in the oil industry to believe it was literally unsinkable. Well, the big rig certainly had a resume to back up such confidence because it, in its first six years of service, it drilled for oil successfully off the coast of Alaska, off the coast of New Jersey, and it had survived more than 50 storms out in the ocean. Sadly, its undefeated record changed on Monday, February 15, 1982, when a severe storm passed through the area where the Ocean Ranger was drilling off the coast of St. John's, Newfoundland. During the height of the storm, a rogue wave hit the oil rig and broke a porthole. Uh, a porthole is really just a small window in which the ballast controller was able to look out. Well, a small window on the side of the rig got smashed by the wave and water entered into the ballast control room, which then led to short-circuiting the ballast control panel. This led to a cascade of events causing the Ocean Ranger to list and eventually sink, killing all 84 of its crew members. Subsequent investigations found that the rig had several design flaws, inadequate emergency equipment, life-saving equipment, and the crew lacked sufficient training on how to use it. If there is some silver lining in what happened in this tragedy, it's the it's that the Ocean Ranger changed how future oil rigs were designed, caused the industry to implement tighter restrictions and regulations, and to require better crew training. If you haven't already, you will eventually experience a storm in your life that has a rogue wave hidden within it. A rogue wave that seeks to sink your faith. However, the Lord can use such waves to strengthen our faith and to deepen our relationship with Him. We're taking a break today from our current series in the parables of Jesus, and 
Uh, Lord willing, we'll resume that next week, but I'd like to invite you to open up your copy of God's Word with me to Philippians chapter 1, and to pull out the sermon notes in your worship folder. Uh, If you forgot your Bible, just raise your hand, and uh, one of our ushers can bring one to you. Our big idea for this morning is this, uh, a relationship with Christ and learning His promises can build an unsinkable faith. A relationship with Christ and learning His promises can build an unsinkable faith. There are at least two admirable steps the designers of the Ocean Ranger took that helped build the best oil rig in the world at that time. Uh, First of all, they they learned from the failures of previous models. Uh, And then secondly, they anticipated severe storms would come in the environment in which the Ocean Ranger would be working. Building an unsinkable faith is very similar. It requires looking at our past failures when our faith was not sufficient. And it also requires anticipating severe storms in the environment in which we live. They will come. And our preparation for those storms will often determine whether we get through them or how we get through them. There are plenty of scripture verses and passages that can help us uh, when withstand a rogue wave. Uh, I hope that the three passages we'll be looking at today can at least help start your preparations so that you're ready when your rogue wave comes. Uh, look with me, if you would, at Philippians chapter 1 as I read verses 3 through 6. Paul writes to the church in Philippi, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you always in every prayer of mine for you all making my prayer with joy. Because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day till now, and I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Here's the first um, truth on your outline. I encourage you to jot down, and that is that in Christ, if Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior, you have an unshakable hope. There is an unshakable hope available to you. Paul had a special relationship with the church in Philippi, uh, Greece. He had helped plant the church somewhere around 50 to 51 AD, and he's now writing to them 10 years later while in a Roman prison awaiting trial before Caesar. One of the reasons the Philippian church had a special place in Paul's heart is that they had generously supported him while he was doing his church planting uh, missionary work across the region. Uh, This is what he's referring to in verse 5 when he says, your partnership in the gospel. He's thanking them for that. They had been so changed by the gospel and wanted so many others to be changed by the message of Jesus Christ that the church in Philippi sent him financial aid when Paul was over in Thessalonica, planting that church, for example. And so because this church was outward-focused and they were generous, uh, they got to see the Lord use them to make an eternal impact in the lives of others. Paul then says, I know that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. When a person repents of their sin and by faith trusts in Christ alone for their salvation, 
There are many things that happen in the spiritual realm and within their heart. One of the many things that happens is the Lord initiates a change process called progressive sanctification. It is what theologians call that process that in which the Lord wants to conform us, spending the rest of our lives using various tools to conform us into the image of his Son. So we can glorify him and experience the abundant life he has for us. This verse tells us here in verse 6 that the process is it's good, which means it's necessary. It's work, which means it's difficult. And it's done in partnership with God. Now, Philippians 1.6 also reveals a couple of truths that we need to... Uh, Surface, or at least I want to bring your attention to, and here's letter A and B in your outline. Uh, we need to be worked on by God. Now, we don't like to admit that, because I think if we all had our preference, or perhaps I should just speak for myself, and that is, I would have preferred to have just come to Christ, I want my salvation taken care of, I want to be forgiven for my sins, okay, now just leave me alone. <laughs> But that's not how the Lord works. And the reason is, is that the old way I did things and you did things is what got us into the mess that required salvation for us. You see, because we're all born with an inherited sin nature, we can't have healthy relationships apart from Christ. We can't make wise decisions apart from Christ. We, we can't love people that we need to love unconditionally apart from Christ. We, we can't love difficult family members apart from Christ's help, and we can't persevere through difficult times without the Lord's help. And so left to our own devices without God's help and Him working on us, we just mess things up because we're sinners. And here's the second truth that Philippians 1.6 tells us. Letter B, He loves us too much to leave us alone. You see, we, we think, well, God, if you just love me, wouldn't you just make me comfortable between now and heaven? But the Lord says, and he thinks, no, 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 because I love you, I want to change you. I want to make you more like my son, because then you'll glorify me, and I can use you to impact the lives of other people. The New Testament teaches that those who have surrendered their lives to follow Christ are privileged to be adopted into God's family. And just like any responsible parent, the Lord doesn't leave his children alone to their own devices. I know some of you uh, here today have either been personally touched or know someone who's been touched by adoption. And one of the goals of adoption is to rescue a child from a life of having no parents, no guidance, no love, no protection, and to bring them out of that life into a loving family where they can be loved, can be provided and cared for, and can become something better than what they would have been without that family as an orphan. Well, that's the language that the New Testament uses to talk about those who know Christ. 
Adoption provides a better life for the child than they would have otherwise experienced if left on their own. When, when the adoption takes place, the new parents accept the child as they are, but they also commit to teaching the child a better way to live. For example, they teach a child how to feed itself, how to dress itself, how to speak a new language, how, how to work hard, how to read, how to build healthy relationships, etc., etc. They teach them good values. Now, if I were to introduce you this morning to a couple up here in front with me that, let's say, had adopted a child from birth from Kenya. And let's say that child was now 15 years old. So they'd had 14, 15 years of parenting this child. But this 15-year-old is still wearing diapers, riding in a stroller, and can't speak English and is sucking on a pacifier. If you saw that image up here in front, you would say, take that child away from those parents. They're not doing what they're supposed to do. And the reason you would say this is that you know part of loving a child and being a good parent is nurturing and shaping and disciplining that child to help them meet their developmental milestones. Well, that's how the Lord sees you and I. That's how he parents us. There are developmental milestones the Lord wants us to meet spiritually. He does not want his children walking around in spiritual diapers 15 years after making a profession of faith. That's why he works on us. And the Lord will use any tool he can find at his disposal. He'll use your spouse. Don't look at your spouse right now. Your disobedient children. Your demanding boss. Your financial problems, your health problems. The in-laws you wish you didn't have to host at Christmas. The promotion you were passed up for. The betrayal that you experienced. Or your weird neighbor. He'll use anything. Because the greater goal of conforming you and I into the image of Christ is worth it to him. Absolutely worth it. So what is the unshakable hope that we have? Well, I want to give you some implications today. And what I mean by implication is I, I want to draw a direct line from the verses to our lives. And I want to try and succinctly state, here's what that means. Here's, here's as clear as I can make it. And in this case, the fact that the Lord is working on us it means the Lord isn't done with us yet. And that's good. That's hopeful. That's encouraging. It means we can be secure in any season of our lives here on earth because he has plans for us in Christ. It means age, health, education, marital status, or income level do not determine our usability to the Lord. And so, I have to ask, is the Lord doing anything in your life right now that might be making you more like his son? It's because a relationship with Christ and applying his word 
and learning his promises can build an unsinkable faith. An unsinkable faith. Now, if you would flip over to Philippians chapter 3 with me. Philippians chapter 3, and I'm going to read verses 20 to 21. Paul says, But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Here is the second truth that we find here in Philippians. In Christ, I have an irrevocable citizenship. In Christ, I have an irrevocable citizenship. You might remember me mentioning in the Philippi series, excuse me, the Philippian series I preached earlier this year that uh, Philippi was a Roman colony established in the region of Macedonia after winning the Battle of Philippi in 42 BC. And just like any strategic thinking emperor would do in order to maintain uh, the territory that was gained on the far eastern side of the empire, the emperor ordered soldiers and their families to move out there and plant roots and, and start to grow and build a colony. And in order to appease these first-generation citizens, to motivate them to give up the comforts of Rome and its metropolis and all the things that it had, to go out to the to the boondocks, as we would say, on the outskirts of the empire, to protect the border of the empire, the emperor promised and granted the same privileges that they would have had living on Italian soil. Among these privileges were the right to self-government, freedom from taxation, and legal status equivalent to Rome. And as a result, the Philippians were very proud of the Roman citizenship they possessed. And they had something that other colonies did not. What Paul was getting at here in Philippians 3 is that they had a misplaced confidence in a temporal, worldly government. This often quoted verse here in verse 20, but our citizenship is in, is in heaven, is actually Paul delivering an indirect rebuke to the Philippians in their patriotic pride. He's, he's saying... Our, meaning including himself, who he was also a Roman citizen. Paul, in fact, he wasn't against being a citizen of any nation here on earth. In fact, he even leveraged his citizenship to gain a hearing in front of Caesar. So Paul is not against leveraging legal rights, especially when it comes for helping us spread the gospel, but instead he's saying... Don't put your confidence and your security in a worldly kingdom or nation that is temporary. When I worked as a student manager at the University of Iowa for the football team, I got to see this concept of citizenship play out every week when we would have home games. I got to see citizens from one kingdom living in another place come to our kingdom for home games. When the fans from another team visit, they don't wear Hawkeye black and gold. They wear their team colors. 
And instead of standing out, I'm sorry, instead of, instead, of, instead of blending in, they choose to stand out. So the Illini, for example, or the um, fighting Iowa Cyclones uh, would wear their favorite team colors to represent their team and cheer for them. So they would sing their team songs and cheer for their players, all while surrounded by Hawkeye fans. As citizens of another kingdom, Christ followers are to be like visitors to a football game. We are not at home. We need to clothe ourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ. We need to sing songs about our homeland and cheer for our team. And although we may be outnumbered as visitors, the Lord's promised the game is already won. So, how is having an irrevocable citizenship encouraging? Well, the implication is this. It means we're, we are not home yet. We are not home yet, so don't get comfortable here. Paul was urging the Philippian believers to exchange their temporal perspective for an eternal one. Instead of being proud of citizens, or excuse me, proud citizens of the Roman Empire, he wanted them to focus on being good citizens of heaven. Why? Because no empire on earth is going to last. History has proven this true for the Romans, and it will eventually prove true for our country as well. It is possible if God allows it or causes it for the empire of the United States of America to collapse in our lifetime. And I can't help but wonder how the faith of many professing Christians will be affected. So no matter what happens on the news or who lands in the White House, we can take comfort in the fact that it doesn't change our status as citizens of heaven. And that's what Paul says we should look forward to. Because that is forever, whereas here is temporary. <coughs> so are you living with an eternal perspective? Is your confidence built on what our nation can do or what lies ahead in the next election cycle? Or is your confidence being built on what God has already done in securing your citizenship in heaven? So a relationship with Christ and learning his promises can build an unsinkable faith. Next, let's look at uh, 2 Timothy chapter 1. 2 Timothy chapter 1. Just flip back a few pages. You'll run into the T epistles, 1 and 2 Thessalonians, and then 1 and 2 Timothy. Uh, here's, here's the... Next passage, we're going to read 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 6 through 12. Paul writes, For this reason, I remind you, Timothy, to fan into flame the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, not of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us 
to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, and which has now been manifested through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, for which I was appointed a preacher, an apostle, and teacher, which is why I suffer as I do, but I am not ashamed. For I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. Here's the third point on your outline. In Christ, if Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior, you have an unbreakable confidence. You have an unbreakable confidence available to you. It's commonly accepted that Paul was writing this letter to his son in the faith, Timothy, while in prison awaiting execution. Paul most likely wrote this in the late 60s AD. Timothy was a young pastor, believed to be in his early 30s, maybe 30 years old, pastoring the church in Ephesus. And Paul was writing him final instructions. Second Timothy is the last letter that Paul wrote. And he's writing to Timothy, who was known to be timid. And he's trying to boost Timothy's confidence in the Lord so that Timothy can fulfill the difficult calling he had received in the region of Ephesus. Now, he didn't want to, it's careful, please notice this, he's not trying to boost Timothy's self-confidence. Notice everything that Paul writes in the verses we read has to do with boosting Timothy's confidence in what God can do through him. He's charging Timothy to use the gifts that God had given him to boldly proclaim the gospel. And so, so in verse 7, for example, notice it's clear Timothy, like us, is prone to fear. He says, for God gave us a spirit, not of fear. Some translations say, not of timidity, but of power and love and self-control. The rest of the passage is a reminder that we need not fear because God is with us. And notice the exhortation in verse 8, to not be ashamed. And then the declaration by Paul in verse 12 that he's not ashamed. So... How is having an unbreakable confidence encouraging? Well, here's the implication right to our lives. We've been granted spiritual power to make a spiritual impact. We've been granted spiritual power to make a spiritual impact. God promises in his word that if we open our mouths and we tell others about Jesus, he will be with us. Now, this directly contradicts two common fears I've seen quench the boldness of believers when it comes to witnessing. Uh, many believers, first of all, fear failing because they believe someone coming to Christ depends entirely on them, but it doesn't. The miracle of a rebellious soul repenting of its sin and surrendering control to Jesus Christ is a work of the Spirit done deep within the human heart. And all the Lord expects us to do is to make the gospel available, to make people aware, 
The other fear that quenches boldness, I've noticed, is the fear of losing a relationship. Although the chances of preserving a relationship with an unbeliever, I think, can increase depending on how we share the gospel, the primary goal, though, is not to save relationships. For the Lord, the primary goal is saving souls. The Lord wants to populate his kingdom and to use us to do it. In fact, according to the scriptures, one of the most loving things you can do for someone is to tell them that Jesus died for their sins and wants to spend eternity with them if they will repent of their sin and turn and follow him. In his classic devotion book, My Utmost for, my, for His Highest, the 20th century Scottish preacher Oswald Chambers uh, shares this simple but profound insight about fears that quench our confidence in the Lord. And this is, this is a, a quote that's been bugging me lately, and so you know how it goes. If it bugs me, I want it to bug you too, so we can be bugged together. This has been coming to my mind very often recently, and probably the Holy Spirit doing it. Chambers writes, all of our fretting and worrying is caused by planning without God. In other words, it's envisioning a future without God in the equation. And so it begs the question, are you, are you walking in the power that God has already granted to you? Are you... Are you walking with boldness and confidence in the Lord, not yourself, and a boldness and confidence that he is in your future? So, in Christ, we have an unbreakable confidence. Well, how do we, how do we apply um, these uh, true, simple truths that we looked at today. Um, first of all, here's the first one that comes to mind. I, I think we need to study what the scriptures teach about heaven. I sometimes wonder if the reason why some believers lack boldness and hope is that they either believe things about heaven that are not true, or they don't know anything about heaven at all. And so it's hard for them to visualize their citizenship in heaven, and that causes them then to only think about their citizenship here on earth. So it obviously produces at least a couple of problems. If heaven isn't that great to them, they won't tell others how to get there, and if heaven isn't that great to them, they'll be more comfortable in the world. They won't long to go home to be with the Lord. Randy Alcorn wrote a highly recommended book called Heaven that was published a few years ago. I'd recommend it to you. I, I have not read it yet myself. I want to read it. It's on my list. But I will say it, it comes highly recommended from reputable people. I believe you can get the devotional format of the book in which the content is broken down into daily bite-sized pieces as well. I think there's a, a devotional option available. And you can find that Randy Alcorn's book called Heaven on Amazon or ChristianBook.com. Next, uh, I think we need to memorize the promises of God. Throughout the centuries, godly men and women have built an unsinkable faith 
by memorizing the promises of God that have been preserved for us in the scriptures. Doing so enabled them to replace unbiblical thinking, to gain control of their emotions, and to have the peace that surpasses all understanding in uncertain times. If you've never tried to memorize scripture, I want to encourage you. I mean, you know what? I've never heard a Christian say to me, I'm really good at memorizing scripture. I got it down pat. If you need any help, Pastor Kerry, just let me know. I'll even memorize some verses for you. <laughs> I've never heard that. Everybody I meet says they struggle with it, and so do I. So do I. It is, it is work. But I can tell you the people that I've known that were godly and had a very deep, unsinkable faith, they knew the Word of God well. They memorized Scripture, and it wasn't easy. They put the time and effort into it. Uh, and there's really no, there's no tricks or secrets to it. Um, you memorize it just like you would memorize a song or a play or something, a school assignment, um, think something like that. Uh, if you've never tried to do it, I want to encourage you, I want to give you a 30-day challenge. Try it for 30 days and see if it does not change your life, your attitude, and your emotions. And if it's difficult for you, well, I'll just assume it's difficult for you to remember, to try to memorize scripture. You ever thought about that? That's a double, that's not a double negative, maybe a double positive. If it's difficult for you to remember to memorize scripture, because I've been struggling with that lately, I've been forgetting to review my scripture verses, my memory verses. Here's a, something I'm going to try. Download a habit tracking app on your smartphone. I just got one this past week called Strides. It was recommended on a YouTube video that I watched. And basically, you can put in a habit that you want to start, and you can set up how many days and what time you want to do it, and your phone will prompt you, hey, psst, it's time to exercise. Hey, psst, it's time to read, so on and so forth. Just like you get reminders about Facebook or text messages or appointments. And the goal is to help you form new habits, and then it gives you little bits of encouragement and shows you streaks that you've accomplished. And so I'm going to try that this month. Don't ask me how it goes, but um, I just share that with you. I'll let you know if it goes well. I probably won't say anything if it doesn't go well, okay? Um, but I'm, I'm going I'm to try that. Uh, something else that I have done over the years is um, I have uh, written verses on 3x5 cards. You can get a spiral of 3x5 cards at Office Depot or Walmart like this and just write verses. I've done this where I've categorized verses on faith. I have another one of these that's just Proverbs, and I've wrote wisdom on it. So I can switch up what I do occasionally. And I can carry this in the car. I can take it to the, keep it in the restroom. I can I sometimes keep it on the dining room table where I eat my meals so that as I'm eating my meal, I can be reading the verse. But if you just read a verse once, excuse me, every day, five to ten times a day, and maybe just break it down into pieces and just keep repeating it, repeating it. Sometimes I even pray the verse. So that's another way for me to internalize it. I will turn it into a prayer you will eventually be able to recall it. Now, there are Bible promise books you can get online. 
they're okay. That's, you can have a Bible promise book. There are some publishers that have put some out, and they're neat, and they come with leather cover and everything and binding, but you don't have to do that. You can just do something simple like this or put it on Post-it notes. But Christ followers need to memorize Scripture because, let's be honest, there will be times when you're sitting in your car in the parking lot at work knowing you've got a difficult day ahead of you, but your Bible is at home, and you need to hear Isaiah 41, verse 10. Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Or there will be times when you're surrounded by people at a social event, but you feel totally alone. Your Bible is in your car, but you need to hear the Holy Spirit bring back to your memory God's promise in Hebrews 13.5. I will never leave you or forsake you. And there, there's going to be times when you've sinned and you feel so devastated by your sin and your failure and letting the Lord down and the adversary's just pounding you to, into the ground to make sure you never get up again. You're so devastated, you're so weak, and your soul is so despairing, you don't even have the strength to pick your Bible up off the nightstand. That's when you're going to need the Holy Spirit to remind you of the verse you memorized in 1 John 1.9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And it's in moments like that you'll need that verse so you can quote it back to the adversary as well. Another reason we should memorize Scripture is because the day may come when it's illegal to have a copy of God's Word at all. That day already exists in certain parts of the world, and it has existed in the past in church history. And so we should not take for granted that we have access to God's Word in hard copy form, and we have it on the Internet, we have it on our phones. It is so easy to access well, the great Puritan writer and theologian Thomas Watson wrote a book on God's sovereignty and goodness. It's based on the often quoted promise, Romans 8.28. And you're familiar with it, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. That's another good one to memorize, by the way. Out of that verse, Thomas Watson, he was a 17th century preacher, he extracted some wonderfully encouraging, rich truths and sought to answer the question, how does God work all things together for good? And he wrote a sermon series about it. And then that got recorded and put into a book. One of the answers he provides for this question is that trials can motivate us to learn and lean on God's promises. And so Watson writes this, God's promises are cordials in a fainting fit. The psalmist wrote, If your law had not been my delight, I would have perished in my affliction. 
The promises are as a cork to the net to bear up the heart from sinking in the deep waters of distress. Fainting was a common problem in the Victorian era, especially for women for various reasons, including the corsets they had to wear uh, that caused malnutrition issues, uh, lead-based paint, there was arsenic in makeup, and on and on. And so the fainting fit is a, is a metaphor that preachers like Watson and Spurgeon use to refer to the despairing of the soul, where the soul feels faint. In the 17th century, when Watson lived, cordials were medicinal concoctions compromised of alcohol, herbs, and spices. And they were kept in bottles that looked like cough syrup. And doctors had shelves of cordials that they would prescribe for various diseases and sicknesses. The cordials were designed, excuse me, and created to invigorate the body and revive the heart. Watson was urging his congregation to take their medicine when their soul is feeling sick. That's what he means when he says God's promises are cordials for fainting fits. In other words, to ingest the promises of God and failing to do so would be as foolish as not taking medicine when you're sick. It's a powerful illustration and a helpful reminder that it's still applicable today. Just as if somebody had said, I'm not feeling well, I'm sick, and if you ask them, have you taken any medicine? And they go, no, I don't believe in medicine. You would struggle to have compassion for them. Well, in the same way, if someone is struggling in their faith, and they're discouraged in heart, and they've not gone to the scriptures to pray and meditate and memorize the promises of God, why aren't you taking your medicine? It's sitting right there. You don't even have to go to the doctor to get a prescription. And so, a relationship with Christ and learning his promises can build an unsinkable faith. Would you join me as we close in prayer? Heavenly Father, I, I know in my own life and certainly in the lives of those here and some listening online that there are storms that come and there are rogue waves that hit. And I know that for some here today who are listening, the thought of trying to memorize scripture is overwhelming to them. Lord, please, by your grace and by your spirit, would you help them to get over that hurdle? Would you help them to see that they can do it? And when, Lord, would you please help them to see just how powerful it is, how much it can help them? Father, would you help us to be a church, please, that not only loves your word, but digests it in such a way that we speak it 
to one another. We encourage one another with it. We recite it to ourselves and we allow your word to change our thinking. And we allow your word to lead our emotions so we aren't led by them. And Lord, for those who are discouraged today or despairing or having a fainting fit, Lord, please, would you encourage them? Would you show them how you are working all things together for good? So they can know that you've not left them, that you're with them, and that you are making them more like your son. We thank you, Lord, for your word. We thank you for those who fought to protect and preserve it. Thank you, Lord, for locking the Apostle Paul up in prison so he would write these letters. And we thank you, Lord, for men like William Tyndale, who gave his very life and the comforts of home and being with his family so that believers like us, laymen, could have access an English copy of the Bible and be able to read the Bible on our own instead of having to rely on a priest who knows Latin to teach it to us. Thank you, Lord, for men like Tyndale. We pray all these things in the powerful and precious name of Jesus Christ our Lord. We hope you've enjoyed this Vanguard Bible Church podcast. You can find more sermon messages online at vanguardbible.org. Have a great week, and we hope we'll see you soon.